there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode features descriptions of natural disaster and extreme trauma that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. June 30th, 2013, 4.30 p.m. 21-year-old firefighter Brendan McDonough was making his way through nightmarish traffic into the burning village of Yarnell, Arizona. Less than an hour before, Brendan had been on lookout, watching a wildfire develop high in the northern Arizona mountains. He'd been reporting to his crewmates, the Granite Mountain Hotshots, by radio. At that point, the flames were a half mile away. Then the wind changed direction. Within minutes, the blaze spiraled into a raging firestorm. After narrowly escaping with his life, Brendan was told to move the crew trucks to a safer place in town. Meanwhile, the rest of his team remained in a burned over region known as the Black. By the time Brendan drove the first truck into Yarnell, the blaze had already reached it. Flames billowed through the streets. Smoke covered the sky like a toxic cloud blotting out the sun. Panicked residents raced to save livestock and themselves before the fire took them all. As he struggled to make his way through the chaos, Brendan assured himself that everything would be all right. He was about to reach the rendezvous point. In the meantime, his crewmates were in the safest place they could be. Then, amidst the cacophony of voices on his two-way radio, the firefighter heard his superintendent, Eric Marsh. Clearly and calmly, Eric announced that the Granite Mountain hotshots were heading to their escape route. Brendan's blood suddenly ran cold. The thought that his firefighting brothers were secure on the mountain had kept him from panicking all this time. Now, they were leaving the safe zone and descending towards Yarnell with no idea of the horrors that awaited them. Welcome to Survival. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. You can find episodes of Survival and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Survival for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Survival in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we saw how 21-year-old Brendan McDonough was caught in the line of fire until a fellow hotshot saved his life. He was then assigned to move the crew vehicles to a rendezvous point in Yarnell as the blaze ran with unprecedented speed towards the town. This week, we'll pick up with Brendan's supervisor, 43-year-old Eric Marsh, in the moments leading up to his decision to leave the black. 
We'll explore how Eric struggled with dual loyalties to the Granite Mountain hotshots and to the imperiled citizens of Yarnell. And we'll see how a calculated risk led to an unimaginable disaster as the hotshots came face to face with a 2,000 degree firestorm. On June 30th, 2013, Eric Marsh stood on a lookout point high in the Weaver Mountains. It was 4 p.m. The wildfire had not yet reached Yarnell. But from his current position, the 43-year-old veteran could see that it soon would. This meant he had only minutes to make up his mind about what to do. Earlier that morning, Eric's crew, the Granite Mountain Hotshots, had been assigned to clear a line in the rear of the fire. It was their job to ensure that the blaze didn't change directions and make a run at Yarnell. They'd executed the task to the best of their ability, but sometimes wildfires can be unpredictable. Now the blaze had turned and was rapidly overtaking Yarnell, the very town they'd been ordered to protect. And in their current position, the Granite Mountain hotshots could do nothing to stop it. This was incredibly frustrating for Eric. As the head of a wildland firefighting unit, he had three main priorities. The safety of his crew, the lives of civilians, and the preservation of property. The first of these worries was currently taken care of, but the latter were not, and this presented him with a dilemma. Should he keep his men in the black, thereby protecting them from the fire, but doing nothing to help the citizens of Yarnell? Or should he take a calculated risk and have them leave the safe zone to rendezvous with the rest of the firefighting crews in town? It was a difficult decision. As he struggled to make up his mind, Eric's thoughts lingered for a moment on his men. He'd handpicked and trained every one of them himself. They were like sons to him. In fact, many men on the crew called Eric Papa. He would do absolutely anything to protect them. At the same time, this was exactly the type of disaster scenario they'd been preparing for. The citizens of Yarnell needed help, and Granite Mountain could provide it. But they couldn't do it from their current position in the black, and if they were going to move, they needed to do so immediately. Conflicted, Eric radioed his right-hand man, 36-year-old Captain Jesse Steed, who was waiting with the rest of the men nearby. Jesse, you copy? Jesse was a guy after Eric's own heart, a proud Marine, tough as nails, but loyal to those he loved. He shared Eric's protectiveness of the crew, and he too was mulling over what they should do next. As Eric relayed what he was seeing from the lookout point, Jesse observed the rest of the crew. He saw 30-year-old Chris McKenzie, Brendan McDonough's one-time hazer, shooting videos on his phone. Others were taking pictures of the fire in the distance, eating lunch, texting with their loved ones. In short, they were taking a well-earned rest. But they still had a job to do, and as a Marine, Jesse took his duty to civilians very seriously. He thought carefully about the citizens of Yarnell and what it would take to protect them from the approaching blaze. As the two men talked things through, helicopters whirred by overhead, racing toward Yarnell at top speed. Emergency vehicles converged on the town from both directions, all the while, the wildfire roared inexorably towards it. 
influenced by these sights and a deeply rooted sense of duty, the firefighters made their decision. They would take the calculated risk of leaving their current position, taking an escape route to Boulder Springs Ranch about a mile below. Once the choice was made, Eric hustled down from the lookout point. He rejoined the crew as they shouldered their gear and prepared to move out. Even this simple act was backed by years of training. A hotshot's pack weighs up to 45 pounds. It contains a hard hat, headlamp, drip torch, first aid kit, and several gallons of water, among other small supplies. The crew also carried chainsaws and special double-sided axes made for cutting and clearing brush. Thanks to the endurance they'd built up during years of PT, the Granite Mountain hotshots could hike a mile in about 15 minutes hauling this much gear. That meant they should reach their destination in less than half an hour. They marched in a single file line, with the strongest men in the front to clear brush and in the back to ensure that no one got left behind. At first, their path led over the ashes of the burned out black. They picked their way toward a fire road that followed a ridge along the mountain. About a third of a mile in, however, the path turned off to the south and descended into a brushy canyon 500 feet below. This was the point of no return. They could stop where they were and remain in the safe zone, or they could keep going and leave the black. Whichever way they chose, Eric had only seconds to decide. And once the choice was made, they had to commit and deal with the consequences. Eric checked the wind speed and the fire's current direction. He listened carefully to radio reports on how fast the blaze was moving. He looked down at the ranch, a straight one-mile hike from their current position. And at last, he made his final decision. Around 4.15 p.m., Eric Marsh called out over the radio that the Granite Mountain hotshots were going down their escape route. For the next quarter of an hour, they would be descending an escape route through the canyon to Boulder Springs Ranch on the outskirts of town. This would turn out to be the most fatal decision Eric ever made. Coming up, we'll see how a calculated risk led to catastrophic results when a blaze moving faster than any in recent history cut off the hotshot's escape. Thank you so much for listening. We want to take this time to tell you that Survival will be taking the next two Mondays off. We'll be back with a brand new episode and an important announcement on January 6th. In the meantime, we do have a special gift to share with you. While we're away, we'll be airing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. If you'd like to check out the most requested episodes from ParCast's other shows, subscribe to ParCast Presents to hear our best of 2019. From everyone here at ParCast, we'd like to wish you a happy holiday season. We're thankful for your support and look forward to bringing you even more unique and entertaining podcasts in the new year. Thanks for listening. Now back to the story. Around 4.15 p.m. on June 30th, 2013, 43-year-old Superintendent Eric Marsh and 36-year-old Captain Jesse Steed agreed to lead the Granite Mountain hotshots out of the black. In doing so, they aimed to reach a safe zone on a ranch about 15 minutes away. A thousand feet below, in the town of Yarnell, 
Brendan heard Eric's announcement over the radio. He had absolute faith in his mentor's ability to protect them. With that comforting thought in mind, he turned his attention back to the task at hand. He didn't know the crew had moved off the black. Brendan was still about a quarter mile away from the rendezvous point, and the situation was now apocalyptic. The fire was so large and powerful that it was generating its own wind, creating the effect of a blazing tornado. Burning branches were ripping off trees and hurled like flaming spears across the roadways. The air was so hot that windows were melting. In a catastrophe of this magnitude, one of the greatest dangers to Brendan was fear. Survival instructor and best-selling author Tim McWelch points out that when people panic during natural disasters, they make mistakes that render their situations worse. McWelch writes, usually these stories don't have a happy ending. Fortunately, in Brendan's case, he was already practicing the tactics McWelch recommends to combat fear in life-threatening situations. One of these is to plan for disasters ahead of time, which Brendan had been doing as a hotshot since day one. Anytime he and his brothers weren't out fighting fires, they were training for various deadly scenarios. Another strategy McWelch mentions is to focus on something bigger than oneself. Faith, family, or anything that triggers a strong, positive emotion. This is essentially what Brendan was doing when he thought about his firefighting brothers. His love for Eric, Jesse, Chris, and the other hotshots gave him something to hold on to in moments when panic threatened to overwhelm him. Little by little, Brendan managed to press on through the chaos. And at last, around 4.30, he reached the new rendezvous point, a restaurant on the south side of town. This was the closest safe location to the fire. The restaurant's parking lot had been cleared of brush, so there was nothing to burn. It was also large enough to park several emergency vehicles and serve as a triage zone for injured residents. As Brendan pulled into the lot, he saw several townspeople laid out on stretchers. He also noticed several firefighters slumped on the ground in exhaustion. For some of them, it was probably the first time they'd stopped to rest since the blaze ignited almost 24 hours earlier. They simply had no strength left to fight. Brendan parked the vehicle in the lot and hunkered down to listen to the radio. He wanted desperately to know what was happening with his crew. What little he could hear was not encouraging. Since leaving the ridge only a few minutes before, Eric and the Granite Mountain hotshots had lost sight of the fire. This was a major problem. And it wasn't the only one they were about to face as a result of their decision to do exactly the opposite of what experts recommend during a wildfire. According to survival author Josh Piven, one of the best ways to live through a blaze is to move to a natural fire break, that is, an area free from combustible fuel. That would include the black, the burned over area which the men had just decided to walk away from. Piven also recommends avoiding open areas filled with dry brush, such as the canyon into which the hotshots were currently descending. Eric and Jesse were experts in wildfire survival. They had decades of experience between them. They were both aware of the risks, but agreed to press on anyway, perhaps because their wish to save lives outweighed the drive to protect their own. 
Whatever their reasons, the team pressed forward, clearing their path with chainsaws and Pulaski's. They worked quickly, sweat pouring down their faces, their gazes trained on the safe zone less than a mile ahead. Around 4.35, Eric radioed air support and asked for a line of flame retardant to be dropped along the canyon wall closest to the fire. Although many of his transmissions were garbled in the canyon, this one apparently got through. Two minutes later, a plane droned overhead, preparing to drop the chemicals right where Eric wanted them. Flame retardant is typically a phosphate-based compound designed to slow the spread of a fire while crews are working to put out the flames. It doesn't stifle the fire, but temporarily halts its progress. In Eric's mind, it was a preventative measure to buy time in case the blaze happened to turn in their direction. Tragically, however, just as the plane was preparing to drop, a tremendous blast of wind blew a cloud of smoke over the canyon. Now, with zero visibility, the pilot couldn't see where to place the chemicals. As a result, the plane flew away without making the drop. Worse, far worse, the gusts stirred up the fire. Already leaping to heights of 50 feet, the blaze sucked in fresh oxygen and doubled in height. It was producing so much kinetic energy that it began to generate its own wind. Thus, in this moment, the out-of-control wildfire transformed into a 2,000-degree, 100-foot-tall inferno. The firestorm turned once again and began raging toward the canyon. Within two minutes, Eric and his crew saw the first signs of flames along the rim. They must have stared at it for a split second in shock. Eric had over 20 years' experience facing some of the deadliest blazes in the country, but even he had never seen a fire move this fast. It had ripped through a full mile of countryside in the past five minutes, and now it was barreling straight toward them. Within seconds, their escape route to the ranch was blocked by a 10-story wall of flame. Granite cliffs barred the way on either side, the path they descended was the only way out of the canyon, but it was a mile-long trek uphill, and at the rate the fire was currently moving, there was no way they could possibly outrun it. Eric must have realized in this moment that he'd made a horrible mistake, but he couldn't give in to panic. There were 18 desperate men looking to him for orders. He absolutely must find a way to get them out of here alive. Eric called out on the radio for air support, but the signal was garbled and no one responded. He made the request again. This time, people heard him, but they still didn't understand. Apparently, no one had really copied earlier when he'd said they were heading toward the ranch. The other firefighters seemed to think they were still in the black. As Eric's calls were repeatedly misinterpreted, panic began to seize him. He could now see the firestorm coming at them like a tornado. The heat was so intense that trees exploded before the flames even touched them. Granite boulders along the canyon wall were cracking like quail eggs. In the face of this approaching hell, Eric finally lost his cool. He screamed into the radio, Air attack! Granite Mountain 7, we are in front of the flaming front. Finally, the message got through. 
a supervisor realized that the crew was in trouble and ordered a pilot to go check on them. Unfortunately, it was too late. Eric could see that by the time the pilot reached them, the fire would already have reached their position. Their only remaining option was to deploy the fire shelters. As we mentioned in part one, fire shelters are heat-resistant aluminum domes about the size of sleeping bags. To use them, Eric and his men would have to ditch their gear, lie down on the ground, and hold the shelters over themselves like shells. The aluminum would withstand temperatures of up to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. A glance at the oncoming firestorm probably told the hotshots this wasn't enough. Nevertheless, they kept fighting. Choking on the toxic air, seared by the heat, they went to work with saws and shovels. They cleared out a depression in the center of the canyon just wide enough to fit 19 shelters side by side. Then they pitched their chainsaws into the brush, knowing that if the oil in them ignited, it could make the fire hotter still. Once free of their tools, the hotshots yanked off their packs and pulled out their tightly rolled aluminum fire shelters. They flung the protective covers out flat in the clearing. By now, the fire was roaring too loudly for them to hear each other. They could only rely on training to know that they deployed in order of seniority. The newest crewman went first, ducking under his shelter face down then the second most recent recruit, then the third, and so on. 30-year-old Chris McKenzie went close to the end. Second to last was 36-year-old Captain Jesse Steed. Finally, only Eric Marsh was left. He might have stood for an instant alone, blinded by the glare and seared by the unimaginable heat of the approaching inferno. Then he tucked into his own shelter, and the blaze overtook them all. A few thousand feet above, planes and helicopters circled over the canyon, hoping for a break in the dense smoke. Rescue teams called out on the radio for the Granite Mountain hotshots. In response, they heard only three short clicks and then silence. Coming up, we'll learn the ultimate fate of the Granite Mountain crew and how Brendan McDonough found a way to carry on alone. Now back to the story. Approximately seven minutes after leaving the black on June 30th, 2013, 43-year-old Eric Marsh and 18 of his crewmen were trapped in a canyon filling with fire. Air support couldn't see them to provide help. With their escape route cut off, they had no choice but to deploy their fire shelters in a last desperate bid to survive the oncoming inferno. Meanwhile, the remaining member of the Granite Mountain Hotshots, 21-year-old Brendan McDonough, was feeling trapped as well. He'd last spoken to his crewmates about 45 minutes ago, and since then, he'd heard Eric call for assistance several times on the radio. He could tell from the strain in his mentor's voice that they were in dire circumstances. But Yarnell was now encircled by the fire, and Brendan couldn't get to the crew to help. He also couldn't understand how their situation had changed so dramatically, so fast. Less than an hour ago, Eric and the others were in the safest place on the mountain. They'd taken an escape route, which should have been far enough from the fire to allow them to get to shelter. But somehow, 
The blaze had overtaken them, and now they were fighting for their lives. How had this happened? More importantly, how were they going to survive? What Brendan and many others were struggling to come to terms with was the fact that this wasn't just another wildfire. It defied all expectations of how blazes normally behaved. The fact that it had reached Granite Mountain's escape route while the team was in an indefensible position was further evidence that Yarnell Hill was, in fact, a superfire. According to Professor Peter Foulet from Northern Arizona University at Flagstaff, superfires are extremely large, powerful, and fast-moving blazes that defy normal containment tactics. They're intensified by the heat and drought associated with climate change. Feeding off desiccated brush, they develop at a pace that allows them to create their own wind. This, in turn, makes them bigger, hotter, and faster than most wildfires on record. Brendan and his fellow hotshots were aware that fires feed on oxygen and fuel, but they simply had not experienced a blaze that developed and changed as quickly as this one, and the reality dawned on them too late. As the moments passed and Brendan heard nothing more from Granite Mountain, he realized it was time to take action. He may not be able to reach them, but he could still do something to help his crewmates survive. Based on Eric's last transmission, Brendan knew that the hotshots had been forced to deploy their fire shelters. This meant they would probably need treatment for burns and gas inhalation. So he sprang into action, collecting medical supplies from the Granite Mountain trucks and other emergency vehicles. Water, bandages, ointment, oxygen tanks, and anything else he could think of that might help his crew. Meanwhile, he listened closely to the radio for updates. It wasn't easy to discern what was going on. A cacophony of voices clamored on the walkie. Ground crews and air support, hot shots and emergency teams, supervisors and commanders. But no one seemed to know where the Granite Mountain men were. And although by now it was clear that the team needed assistance, the scene in Yarnell was so apocalyptic that no one had any time to help them. Little by little, however, the incident commander reestablished control. The crews formed new lines, evacuated all but the last remaining diehards, and focused on saving the last structures standing in Yarnell. Then, around 5.10 p.m., 35 minutes after Eric's last transmission, ground units deployed to search for the missing Granite Mountain crew. Brendan wanted to go along, but higher-ups from other teams decided he should stay with the trucks. Brian Frisbee, the man who'd saved Brendan less than two hours earlier, was one of the chosen rescuers. He let the young firefighter know he'd do everything he could to bring the hotshots back alive. However, as Brian Frisbee drove his UTV into the canyon where they'd heard Eric's last transmission, he could see that there was little hope. The landscape was torched into carbon. The ground was so ashen that it looked like the surface of the moon. The air was thick with dusty brown smoke, making it nearly impossible to see. As Brian and the other ground crewmen struggled to make their way up the canyon, helicopters and planes continued to circle overhead. Teams in the air and on foot called out to one another by radio, but for a time, there was little to report. Then, around 6.10 p.m., 
the wind shifted again. At last, the dense smoke began to clear. One of the pilots spotted something metallic shimmering on the canyon floor. Thinking it might be the fire shelters, he landed his helicopter and deployed a flight medic to check it out. The medic rushed across the smoldering landscape. As he drew near, he saw the clear depression on the canyon floor. Hiking even closer, he heard something that made his heart stop. Voices. The medic quickened his pace. Moments later, he reached the space where the granite mountain hotshots had made their final stand. The pilot had been correct. The shining material he'd seen was the fire shelters, but they were no longer the protective coverings they had once been. Some of the shelters had melted. Others had been ripped off the hotshots' bodies and pulverized by the firestorm. As for the voices the medic had heard, they were coming from the hotshots' radios, which had somehow miraculously survived the blaze. The medic paused only a few somber moments to take stock of what had happened. Then he called out his findings over the radio. The Granite Mountain hotshots had been located at last. There were 19 confirmed fatalities. Back in Yarnell, Brendan heard the announcement on the walkie. He couldn't believe it. Only this morning, he'd sat at a briefing with his mentor, Eric. He'd been joking around with his buddy, Chris, that they'd be home in time for dinner. How was it possible that all 19 of his beloved firefighting brothers were gone? At first, he refused to believe it. Instead, he sank into denial. According to survival author Amanda Ripley, this is a highly common response to disaster scenarios. Ripley suggests that our tendency to disbelieve terrible things are happening may be related to an ancient survival instinct to play dead. And for a while, that's just what Brendan seemed to be doing. He sat dazed in the buggy as the town of Yarnell continued to burn around him. Darkness, fire, panic, smoke, everything merged into a haze. He lost track of time. At certain moments, he felt that this entire day had been a nightmare, and any second now, he would wake to see his brothers walking down the street toward him. Sadly, that didn't happen. And as Brendan sat alone and dazed in the buggy, the events around him continued to unfold. At about 9 p.m., he began to hear phones vibrating. First one, then several more. He didn't recognize the significance of the sounds at first, but little by little, it dawned on Brendan what must be happening. The families of his fellow hotshots had heard the news. They were calling their husbands, boyfriends, sons, over and over, desperately hoping to hear that they were all right. They must have heard that there was a survivor. As Brendan felt the full weight of this realization, he was suddenly crushed with guilt. Unable to cope with the sound of his dead crewmates ringing phones, he got out of the buggy and walked away. Over the coming weeks, the Yarnell Hill fire continued to rage. It consumed over 8,000 acres and was not fully contained until July 10th, almost two weeks after lightning first struck in the Weaver Mountains. Meanwhile, Brendan struggled with an overwhelming sense of shame. Why had he survived and none of his brothers had? 
why hadn't he been there in the shelter with them in that final moment? And perhaps the most difficult question of all, as the lone survivor, what should Brendan do now? Still longing to be of service, he spent time with the victims' families and spoke out on behalf of wildland firefighters across the country. He hoped that in continuing to stand up for his hotshot brothers, in a way, he'd be keeping them alive. But as time passed, Brendan began to lose hope. He had trouble connecting with his daughter, Michaela. Tired of reliving the fire, he grew a beard in hopes that people would stop recognizing him. It didn't work. Strangers approached him on the street, wanting to understand what had gone wrong. Brendan felt he had nothing more to tell them. Little by little, Brendan's depression turned into rage. But with an inhuman antagonist, there was no one to direct his anger towards. He began lashing out in the privacy of his home, smashing his possessions against the wall. Increasingly, all of his mental energy focused on the single mistaken thought that his brothers were dead and it was all his fault. Although he may not have realized it at the time, Brendan's experience was common to people who live through disasters when their loved ones don't. It's called survivor guilt, a psychological response we've discussed previously on this show. And in his case, it was taking on a particularly destructive form. According to psychologist Ellen Hendrickson, survivor guilt can manifest in a variety of ways, from bittersweet feelings to all-out despair. Symptoms may include feelings of confusion or unworthiness and the inability to maintain healthy relationships. Dr. Hendrickson points out that the question is rarely whether a survivor will experience feelings of guilt, but how best to cope with them when they do. She suggests a number of possible solutions. One is to do something meaningful for someone else. Brendan had been attempting to do this by speaking out on behalf of his fallen brothers, but in the process, he'd also been forcing himself to relive his unresolved trauma. And as a result, he felt guiltier than ever. Another option, also recommended by Hendrickson, is for the survivor to remind themselves that they are strong enough to handle the loss. For Brendan, this ultimately turned out to be a better solution. Brendan began attending therapy, reliving each moment he had spent with the Granite Mountain hotshots and exploring the impact they'd had on his life. He realized that after growing up with absent parents, he suffered from fear of abandonment. The day Eric Marsh had told him he was part of the team was the first time Brendan ever felt like he was worth something. Digging into these memories was painful for Brendan, but his growing self-awareness also gave him strength. Eventually, he realized that his time with the Granite Mountain hotshots had fundamentally changed him for the better. Once upon a time, he would have responded to this kind of pain by giving in to addiction. But now, thanks to Eric and his brothers, Brendan was strong enough to handle it. Little by little, the survivor of the Yarnell Hill fire began to heal. He began speaking out again on behalf of his fellow hotshots. In 2016, he published a book detailing what happened in the fire and proposing ways to make wildland firefighting safer. Most importantly, Brendan reconnected with his daughter, Michaela. And just as she had when she came into the world, 
she gave the young firefighter a reason to keep going. Thanks for listening to Survival. We'll be back next week with another episode. For more information on the Yarnell Hill Fire, amongst the many sources we used, we found Brendan McDonough's book, Granite Mountain, the first-hand account of a tragic wildfire, its lone survivor, and the firefighters who made the ultimate sacrifice extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Survival and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Survival, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Survival for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Survival in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Survival was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Survival was written by Megan Dane, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. Just a reminder that we'll be back with a new episode on January 6th. In the meantime, we'll be playing our listeners' most requested episodes of 2019. Thanks again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful holiday season.